With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hi everybody, welcome back to the Gallagher Shots YouTube channel. It is myself, Chris, host of the Always Man and Faces podcast here, and I am joined by a very special guest tonight. It is Ben Jacobs. So first of all, Ben, I just want to say thanks very much for joining me tonight, and I'm sure I will, we'll dive into all these questions because there's quite a few came on already. Um, but before we get going in regards to all things TakeOver, what I want to ask you is basically just give a little bit of description of who you are and, <laughs> and what you, you do for a living. Yeah, good evening, Chris. And by the way, I've got my black and white shirt on this evening to give a little bit of affinity towards Newcastle United. But I'm a freelance journalist working for a variety of outlets, predominantly in broadcast. So you hear me commentating on the EFL and the WSL. You hear me broadcasting for Al Jazeera and CBS Sports and then writing outlets like the Blizzard and Tifa Football, which is part of The Athletic. And of course, Prior to that, which is why I seem to have this sub name or title of being Jacobs with people putting the extra I in, some jokingly, some out of malice because they believe I'm some form of Qatari stooge. And that's because I did spend two and a half years as a senior journalist with BN Sports based out of Doha. And prior to that, five years across the Middle East, including in Saudi Arabia, working on PIF events and within the UAE, working for a radio station called the Arabian Radio Network. So as you'll find out this evening, I talk a lot. I'm a broadcaster. And naturally, I've been covering, because of my knowledge of the Middle East and North Africa, the Newcastle takeover story very closely over the last 14 months or so. Perfectly summed up. What I want to do, want to touch on, mate, is the, the fact of the 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 interaction let, let's say that you're currently getting on social media it seems as if recently you may have turned a corner with, with a section of the Newcastle United fans because like you said obviously the 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 name change uh, being uh, from Ben to, to being Jacobs on this one um where do you think think this has came from is this just basically with your previous connections to being sports and, and people think that you've got some sort of agenda against Saudi Arabia I think it's a mixture of things. I mean, the first thing I would say is Newcastle United's fan base are intelligent and passionate, and I enjoy engaging with the vast majority. And the second thing to say is when you remove the trolls, those across Twitter are well-informed and do want both sides of this takeover story. And if it was as simple as approval, then we wouldn't be almost a year to the day when apparently the deal was done in April of last year. And the other thing to bear in mind, too, is I get a lot of engagement from Newcastle United fans that are not on Twitter or social media. And during the pandemic, what's happened, in my opinion, is in the absence of that 45 to 50,000 fans packed inside St. James's Park, where they could have a voice and interact with each other and ultimately communicate through various means. Twitter in particular has taken on an added pertinence. But you have to be careful because it's not always reflective of the entire Newcastle United fan base. And I suspect that those when the feeling was the takeover was a done deal that got frustrated about the delays and felt like the Premier League were corrupt 
started to feel like being sports were influencing the takeover from the outside, then naturally made connections with my contacts within being sports because I'd worked for them ultimately for two and a half years as a staffer, but also two years prior to that as a freelancer out of the United Arab Emirates. So the connection was clearly there. And I suppose people started to believe that BM were trying to derail the takeover. So anybody that gave you the piracy angle, if you like, was ultimately anti-takeover and anti-Newcastle United. And therefore, there was a further feeling that BM Sports and piracy didn't have a place in the owners and directors test. But over time, what's happened is people, I think, have come to appreciate that this is a complicated takeover. It's still by no means a done deal. And piracy is a legitimate factor. And as a consequence, those looking to hear the full story have over time, some anyway, perhaps warmed to my perspective and realized that where possible, I just try to give balance and dig as deep as I can and relay facts back to the fans. Yeah, this is one of the reasons why I wanted you to, to get you on again, Ben, is, is obviously... I think fans need to hear a story from both sides. I think if you go down the, the constant positive route, that then you could be leading fans and, and mislead them and, and put them down this path where everything's all, all rosy and, and takeover is definitely going to happen. And, and we are now 10 months on from our first podcast, which which myself and you done on April 28th at the height of, of the first lockdown. Shopping these days can be underwhelming, but at QVC, we believe those who love to shop deserve a living, breathing way to shop, where product descriptions are alive with demos by creators, chats with inventors, and hosts who know the most. From self-care and kitchenware to fashion trends and forever faves, at QVC, we bring life to products and products to life. Shop qvc.com podcast and use code QVC15podcast for $15 off $30 for new customers. This is shopping brought to life. And we were both, I've just listened to it back before we start recording here tonight, and we were both very, very positive in relation to the takeover approval. We we thought it would be a matter of weeks because of the things which I was hearing, the things which, which you were hearing from your side. Um, it opens a can of worms right now, but what went wrong? What really went wrong at that very start for us both to be so confident? Where were the initial red flags for you? I think... Ultimately, the confidence came from the fact that those within the consortium were talking openly to media and relaying this message that there were no red flags. It turned out instead that there were maroon flags and then Qatar and piracy came into the mix, as of course did and still does the separation issue between PIF and the Saudi Arabian government. But all of that was glossed over because the buyers were prepared to talk openly and confidently about getting the deal done. And when you have a buyer that speaks with such confidence and definitive statements as if to suggest that a deal is imminent, it gets picked up upon. And of course, at this point, Bean hadn't written any letters to anybody Nobody from the Premier League had suggested that there would be complications with the owners and directors test. And the reason for that is because in April it hadn't advanced that far. And then we entered into May and due diligence was being carried out in the owners and directors test. And at exactly the same time, due to the COVID-19 pandemic, the Saudi central bank, which controls government funds, made a massive investment into PIF, which was effectively a COVID bailout payment. So you can imagine the Premier League are going through all the paperwork. They've not made any determinations to begin with. They're simply trying to 
work out who exactly they're going to apply the test to. Mm -hmm. And as we now well know, the sticking point was, is it PIF? Do they have legal independence? Or in practical terms, are they influenced and controlled by the government? And you're trying to make that argument. And at the same time, as one side saying we're totally separate, and the Premier League is saying maybe you're not, in swoops the Saudi Arabian government and injects a massive load of cash into their sovereign wealth fund. And then at the same time, you see who's on their board, the media minister, Majid al-Kasabi, Mohammed bin Salman, right at the top. Then they do a small investment into Uber that was personally negotiated by Mohammed bin Salman. So the Premier League suddenly had a lot of question marks as they continued to do their due diligence, at which point that narrative of no red flags suddenly disappeared. The consortium obviously kept a little bit more quiet. And by May and June, it was very obvious that two things were happening. One was that the Premier League had not advanced the owners and directors test as far along as the consortium had implied. And two, it was clear the Premier League wanted to wait into June to work out what the WTO ruling would be specifically on piracy and be out queue. Now, I understand there'll be lots of Newcastle fans listening at this stage and shouting, well, hang on a minute, none of that's relevant to the OND test and it was all intentional delays and the Premier League are corrupt and I understand that perspective and ultimately the club case will delve into some of that and if they prove that the Premier League didn't handle the OND test correctly and forced intentional delays, then the club will have a very strong case. But if the Premier League simply carried out due diligence, that would explain why all the delays took place. And it would also explain why a consortium that said it was a done deal suddenly over last summer went very, very quiet. Mm. So if if we go right back to the start on this, and once again on, on our very first podcast, we we started talking about uh, Vision Twenty Thirty, if I remember correct, uh, and obviously the plans uh, for it to become a new Saudi Arabia, and uh, and it was it the, the town or city called Neom, which you mentioned on there, and that was obviously going to be somewhere where. The, the Saudis will be hosting these sort of events, so the likes of sporting events and, and being a, a tourism hotspot, as, as you would say. Um, obviously, recently, um, Yasser, you'll know your name, Yasser Al Ramian um, mm. ha, has done recent conferences and obviously he's talked about investing one trillion, I think it was, into obviously more investments from Saudi Arabia and the public investment fund. Was there any mention there whatsoever about proposed sporting club takeovers or anything football related, soccer related, anything whatsoever? No, only really sport related and sport is one of the main tenets of Vision 2030. So Vision 2030 is ultimately a remit for PIF to help make Saudi Arabia less reliant on the oil industry by making smart investments both at home and abroad. And in addition to that, by sustaining Saudi Arabia outside of the oil industry, there's a hope that the extra investment globally leads to two things. One is more jobs in Saudi Arabia and thus a better quality of life. And the other is a more positive promotion of Saudi mm. Arabia as a tourist destination. So you can understand how buying Newcastle United fits into that vision because you can do two things. One, you can use Newcastle to market Saudi Arabia to the world. Two, you can have Newcastle related things within Saudi Arabia, like an academy, you can bring them over for a friendly match. Who knows, there might even be a competitive fixture there one day if the takeover goes through. That's certainly how La Liga are thinking, trying to get a game into North America. And then the third thing is sort of flipping Vision 2030 and almost creating a Newcastle 2030 for want of a better phrase. So applying some of the same tenets like investment into the community 
into specifically Newcastle to help create jobs and a better quality of life there. So it all sounds very appealing. And then you have various what are called mega projects and Neom, as you mentioned, is one of them. And that's sort of a brand new, slightly westernized city that will host a range of sporting events. So beach soccer has already been trialed there. And it's thought that eventually other competitive sport will come specifically to Neom. And then at the same time, PIF are heavily involved in boxing. Anthony Joshua, Amir Khan have both been over there. The Saudi International, the golf tournament that Yasser Al Rumiyan is also a huge part of because he's chair of the Saudi Golf Federation. That's just taken place and was won by the world number one, Dustin Johnson, as well. So sport is clearly an integral part. And then we also saw very recently Saudi Arabia and Qatar going head to head for the Asian Cup as well. And eventually they decided to share it. So Qatar has it in 2030 because they won the vote and Saudi Arabia will stage it in 2034. So there's a lot of opportunities for Saudi Arabia to bring sport to its shores but we're still waiting for PIF and Saudi Arabia specifically to invest in something big like Newcastle United that isn't in Saudi Arabia and then see how they tangibly use that to complement Vision 2030. Yeah, well, you, you mentioned obviously you're a Leicester fan uh, and you have mentioned before to, to myself like how well it worked at Leicester in regards to, to Leicester. Basically, what's the word I'm looking for? But Leicester became sort of like a billboard at times uh, for the likes of the, the, the owners, their beliefs. They couldn't, you mentioned um, Buddhist monks coming in uh, to, to bless all the players <laughs> and things like that. Um, do, do you feel as if that was a plan for uh, Saudi Arabia, that they would become and use Newcastle as this billboard to, to bring some sort of connection and, and, and like, like you said, the Western world um, over across? I think they'll want a connection for sure, but until they actually take over and reveal their business plan, it's unclear how involved PIF would be outside of the actual finances. We know that Yasser Al-Rumian would be a listed chairman in all likelihood and is obviously down there as a director for the prospective consortium. But I think that Staverley and the Rubin brothers would be more involved on a day-to-day -day mm. basis. And you have to appreciate as well that Yasser Al-Rumian has lots of different roles and is still a very close advisor to MBS on a day-by-day -day basis. I certainly don't see him giving up the vast majority of his day-to-day -to, -day to take an active role in Newcastle. And that's probably the difference between Newcastle and Leicester, that Kung Vishai, the later owner and his son top were there for every single game they flew in in the blue helicopter that became iconic and landed in the center circle and sadly Kung Vishai ended up passing away in that helicopter leaving the West Ham United game and they had a direct affinity Saudi Arabia from Newcastle fans perspective are definitely going to have a connection and buy into the Geordie culture. But by the same token, let's not forget those wider aims that will have nothing to do with Newcastle United. And it might be a win-win because money is invested into the club and Newcastle, if the takeover happens and they become successful, will naturally end up in Europe and they'll have a wider global audience and they'll go to new places. And ultimately, they will be able to grow as a brand far outside of Newcastle. But by the same token the ownership group will want to bring everything back to Saudi Arabia. So you can certainly expect betting sponsor to go and something like Vision 2030 or Aramco to go on the front of the shirts. You can expect Newcastle to go over to Saudi Arabia for training camps. And to be perfectly honest with you, there's an element of sports washing at play as well. And fans might be very comfortable with that, but it is important to note that not everything about buying Newcastle United is solely to benefit Newcastle United. 
The vast majority may benefit Newcastle United, but it's still there predominantly to grow Saudi Arabia's reputation and to create jobs and a better quality of life back within Saudi Arabia and Newcastle United. Does an orthopedic condition or sports injury have you sidelined? Make your comeback with GW Hospital Sports Medicine. We offer services from neck to toe, including care for shoulders, hips, knees, ankles, and hands. Plus, we're the official healthcare partner of GW Athletics, the DC Furies, and the DC Revolution. Get back to doing the things you love. Learn more at gwhospital.com slash sportsmed or call 888-4-GW-DOCS. Physicians are not employees or agents of this hospital. As a club and brand, if they are acquired, would need to fit into that mold rather than the other way around. Yeah, um, I feel as if obviously uh, when when we spoke previously, um, we we were waiting for the WTO report as well, and I think since that report, it, it, it's gone on and on and on now to, to the point where obviously you have seen relationships start to, to connect once again uh, between the two states there. But obviously, you, you touched on this previously, and I just want to start going through some of the questions which have been sent in, Ben. And uh, so the first one is from NUFC United. That says, do you believe um, the PIF would be more willing to put forward Prince Bin Salman for the test now that the relationship with Qatar has improved? Do you feel as if that, that's something? Because there was rumours that the Premier League did receive a written letter from uh, Bin Salman in regards to the difference between PIF and Saudi Arabia and the government, things like that. Do you feel as if now it's, it has to be a case where he has to be put forward for this uh, fit and honest test? I think it's a very difficult situation to put Mohammed bin Salman directly forwards because then suddenly it's an even clearer owners and directors test. And you're ultimately directly testing somebody that's been accused of all kinds of breaches of human rights. And you may say that's beyond the remit of the Premier League and they only ultimately care about what's best for them and their brand. And piracy specifically is a very personal issue. And the broader human rights, as damning as the record has been, are not directly relevant to the Premier League on a day to day. But I wouldn't see them turning a blind eye to that if Mohammed bin Salman was specifically named. PIF are, as I understand it, going to be very clear in their position, which is they have proven legally to be separate from the Saudi Arabian government and they want to be tested accordingly. Even though relationships have improved between Qatar and Saudi Arabia, that is more relating to easing the problem of piracy. And that may help get the takeover through. But in addition, if it goes through, it provides less of a headache post-acquisition because suddenly Newcastle United games can be promoted all across Saudi Arabia if BN Sports is returned. But if you remove piracy from the equation and you remove politics from the equation and suddenly you just test Mohammed bin Salman, the Premier League have a different decision to make, which is do they want the leader of Saudi Arabia who has been accused of murdering a journalist and all kinds of human rights abuses. And even though Saudi Arabia, obviously through Vision 2030, are trying to promote a more positive image, this is about history. And it's the same guy responsible for that history. So would they simply turn a blind eye to Mohammed bin Salman with a view to the future and because they think it's a good investment all round? Or then if Mohammed bin Salman was directly tested would the Premier League feel that under their terms and conditions, they actually would have more 
evidence to reject the deal. So my understanding remains the same, that regardless of any alleged letters, regardless of any paperwork stating a separation, regardless of any ease politics, the two sides are still completely at odds over this one point. PIF mm. want to be tested as PIF, totally separate from the Saudi Arabian government. The Premier League do not see any separation. They want the Saudi Arabian state to be tested as a shadow director. And that sticking point, which was obviously offered as arbitration prior to the consortium withdrawing, remains and will need to be resolved in full before there's any progress. Yeah. Um, another question which just came in, there's been quite a few questions on, on this basis, um, but let's have a look. This one comes in from um, Kevin. He says, uh, do you have any news on being having their rights to broadcast in Saudi being reinstated? I know there was quite a few things going around with you recently where your head was um, placed on TV remotes <laughs> for the the big, was it the boot queue boxes? Um, so, do you have any update on there? What is actually happening at the moment? Can you watch the games in, in Saudi right now or not? Yeah, they weren't the BLQ boxes, by the way. That's the piracy. Oh, they were the B and sports ones. There was a special B and the legal ones. And apparently, <laughs> I wouldn't recommend buying it. It's a waste. <laughs> it's not aesthetically pleasing either. So the situation is this: B and sports was never blocked on the satellite feed, which means that anybody that had an existing subscription had the ability to renew it all the way through the blockade. So BN never totally disappeared, but its website was blocked. And the situation now is still very similar, that even though the politics has improved, and we obviously had the GCC summit in January, the GAC, who are responsible for either revoking BN Sports or restoring the license, currently are sticking to their position. And the reason for that is because they need to maintain a sense of credibility. This is ultimately a competition regulator. Mm. And the case against BN Sports started before the blockade and was surrounding Euro 2016 and what's called commercial bundling, which is essentially a false means of advertising. It's very common amongst a series of broadcasters. It's not widely seen as illegal. And the irony is the piracy box, BLQ, sold in exactly the same way. So as a consequence, you might say the case is politically fueled, but it started in 2016. It ran for about two years. Bean's license was suspended. And then more recently, after an appeal was lost, Bean Sports were fined about two million quid and their license was entirely revoked. And the GAC are in a really awkward position here because they didn't want to be seen as a body that says, okay, political relations are better, so here's your license back, because they fought for over two years to try and prove that there were genuine commercial grounds for not having BN Sports in Saudi Arabia. But I think at this point, the feeling was that Saudi Arabia might come in for the next cycle of Premier League rights, or they might start their own sports channel. And there is a government-funded sports channel that will start, but it's more sort of to air sport that comes to Saudi Arabia at the moment, like the Formula One, than it is to go out and buy new rights. That might change over time, but BN Sports have got the rights again now. So if the GAC don't allow BN Sports back into Saudi Arabia, then Premier League football and other major rights are not going to be available in Saudi Arabia for many, many years. I say many, many years because there's the rights cycle in the Premier League, which runs for three years, but you've also got La Liga, which runs for one extra year in terms of its analogy to the BN mm. 
Premier League cycle. So then that will be available next year. And then again, if BM win that, it will run for another three years. And you've got things like the Champions League too. So if the GAC don't restore BM, there's going to be a lot of angry Saudi Arabian punters that don't have an existing BM box that are either going to try and find a pirate stream or are going to start calling for BM sports to be restored. So the GAC will come under pressure. And I think what we're going to see is BM eventually restored, but very, very quietly. And the question is, will the GAC make the first move? And to do that, they have to engage with BN Sports. And what makes it complicated is before the GAC, because they are government, engage with BN Sports, there's a feeling that BN should drop their own arbitration case, which is taking place in London, for damages relating to piracy for B out Q. And yet BN are not budging on that. And I hope you're able to follow this without getting a headache, because even trying to describe it to you, my head is spinning. And this is how complicated it all is. BN don't want to drop that case until Saudi Arabia drop their own appeal for the WTO case. So what we might see is a sort of three way movement. The parties engage and then two legal cases get dropped pretty much simultaneously. BN's arbitration case against BLQ, Saudi Arabia's WTO appeal. And once they're gone, BN will come back very, very quietly. But at the moment, even though you see BN Sports out there, the website remains blocked and there's been no engagement between the GAC and BN Sports. And until the two sides speak, BN simply can't come back because BN need to know when they can send their staff into Saudi. Can they set up a call center? Is their website unblocked? When can they start selling? How can they distribute boxes and where to sell them if they're physical boxes and so on? And because none of these talks have happened, BN can't simply come back overnight. But I do expect some movement in the next four to six weeks. And if you were to just ask me without putting a timescale on it, will BN come back? I think the answer to that is a definitive yes, but it may take some time. And it may actually be that the club case is resolved before BN returns, because actually getting BN back might take longer than the club arbitration coming mm. to an end. Yeah, we'll get on to the, the club's arbitration um, towards the end of the podcast. Um, one of the other ones which just came in from John Poole, which I think is a great question, says, if Ben, if you were on the Premier League board, what would you like to see from PIF Saudi to make the green light go ahead? Is there any definite answer to this question? Is there anything which you think the Premier League will look at and think, okay, it's a different entity between the likes of the government, PIF and so on? Um, what would you like to see? I don't think, first of all, the Premier League could afford me on their board. That's the first answer to that <laughs> question. But in all seriousness, it's a difficult one for sure. Transparency is ultimately the answer. So Newcastle fans are under the impression, and I certainly respect this opinion, that the Premier League dragged their feet, that the Premier League are corrupt, that the Premier League have no reason to reject PIF. And maybe over time, some people have changed their mind and they've seen that the separation, even if it comes on a bit of legal paper, isn't entirely clear cut. But what I can tell you is that throughout the process, the Premier League asked a series of questions to specifically PIF. Yes, through the club slash consortium, but they were all ultimately only questions that PIF would be able to provide answers to. And not every question, as I understand it, that the Premier League asked to PIF was fully answered. So it's sort of all very well saying that PIF voluntarily went to a Saudi law court, got a bit of paper and said, here you go, this is legal separation. But if the person that runs PIF is Mohammed bin Salman, they've got a .gov website, they've got a load of government staff 
on their board. Yasser al-Rumi and the listed director is one of the closest allies to Mohammed bin Salman. And then Mohammed bin Salman goes to the own courts and says, can you write me a letter? Whether or not that holds any validity in the United Kingdom and in the Premier League's eyes still remains to be seen. But the Premier League had a series of other questions and PIF need, in my opinion, if I was overseeing this process, to have been as transparent and as clear cut in answering every single question that was asked of them. Because remember, the owners and directors test is essentially, uh, along with a safeguarding test, an honesty test too. So in addition to providing your business plan and showing your finances, which are very quick ticks from the perspective of the consortium, you also have to not mislead anybody, provide full information. And the Premier League in their due diligence clearly did have a number of different questions. So I think that transparency on PIF's perspective could have been improved a little bit. I think that they left other members of the consortium and their legal team to effectively force the process through without answering every question. Of course, again, Newcastle United would argue too many questions were asked. They were unfair questions. They weren't relevant questions. The Premier League on the counter side will simply say, well, we were simply trying to get to a point where we could make a determination. And again, the club case is going to have to look through this and see whether the Premier League or Newcastle United followed the protocol correctly. So, you know, that's one thing is just transparency it's really, really important. And I, I think the other thing specifically from PIF's perspective is that they didn't engage directly with the Premier League through the media minister, Majid Al-Kasabi. And this is really important as well, because sure, he's not a listed director, but he sits on the PIF board. So look at it from the Premier League's perspective again. You have a league that, irrespective of being sports, have seen their rights stolen for two and a half years. And their main point in trying to stop this and take legal action in Saudi Arabia is the media minister. Now, the media minister, Majid Al-Kasabi, is a bit newer to the role. So they were dealing with somebody previously for the vast majority of the period that BLQ was around. But then in comes Majid Al-Kasabi, and he's working with this organization, the SAIP, which is the Saudi Authority for Intellectual Property, trying to shut down piracy. And there he is writing to members of parliament and there he is engaging with people saying, being sports have never complained. Nobody ever filed an official complaint with the SAIP. What's the problem? And naturally, the Premier League is sitting there thinking, hang on a minute. We've tried several times, independent of being, to take civil action against BLQ in Saudi Arabia. And you specifically, the media minister, the highest point of contact, haven't helped us. So PIF could have preempted the piracy issue rather than originally trying to sweep it under the carpet. And remember, uh, Amanda Staverley said to begin with, piracy wasn't a problem, and that's since been proven to be incorrect. So if I was on the Premier League board, which would be a terrible, terrible appointment, just to put that out there. But if I was there and it was the beginning of the process, I would be saying to PIF, listen, you're going to get a lot of heat around some things that probably won't directly affect this decision, like human rights, whether rightly or wrongly, they're probably not going to affect the process. But piracy is. So why don't you lead with the media minister? Why don't you have the media minister assure the Premier League? Why don't you have the media minister finally engage with the Premier League? And he sits on the PIF board, so he's got a foot in each camp. And had they done that, they might have preempted this media storm around piracy and got things done a little bit quicker, maybe even before the WTO report came out. 
Do you think that the likes of Amanda Stavely and the Rubin brothers are sat in the middle of this between Michael J for hope for the Warriors started back in 06 at Camp Lejeune military families witnessing the effects of war on their loved ones now almost 20 years later they've aided over 53,000 service members veterans and families with confidential high quality behavioral health care services at little or no cost to post 9-11 vets and their families over 91% of every dollar donated goes directly to the programs if you're as concerned about our heroes as I am, go to hopeforthewarriors.org. In the Premier League and Saudi Arabia and the PIF, because it seems like, and I may be out of line by saying this, but but I feel as if maybe if the Premier League representatives and the, the Saudi representatives have, have had a meeting in regards to, to what each side wanted from each other's parties, that this could have been resolved months and months ago. It, it just seems a little bit like toys out the pram from from both sides. I think regardless of circumstances and hypotheticals, the separation issue would have come to the fore, come what may. And given that no determination was made because the Premier League and the consortium and Newcastle United disagreed over the relationship between PAF and the Saudi government, that sticking point is still the first hurdle and would have happened whatever terms the different parties were on and would have happened whoever took the lead in terms of talks and negotiations. However, what's interesting is you've got the Rubin brothers who are perfectly capable of investing in the city of Newcastle and Newcastle United Football Club, regardless of PIF. You've got Amanda Staverley, who is a proven broker who's gone to a variety of people who want to invest over the years and could have found money from anywhere. And then you've got PIF, who ironically, might not know that much about the Premier League or may not have known that much about the Premier League before they entered this process, but have got all the money in the world, are richer than all the other 19 clubs in the Premier League put together. So they could have done it independently as well. So having three different people or organisations within the consortium is a strange blend because PIF simply want to acquire to benefit Saudi Arabia and ultimately make Newcastle into a giant again and get success on the sporting field and, for the want of a better word, sport wash in the process. And then Amanda Staverley wants to finally buy Newcastle United, even if it's only with a 10% stake. But the Rubin brothers are a bit of an anomaly here because why do they need 10%? Why do they not either buy the entire club or just take a step away? Because PIF could have taken 90 Amanda Staverley could have taken 20. So it's interesting that there are three components to the consortium, not two. And I think the most logical explanation is everyone other than PIF is going to be day to day and they see it as a viable and exciting investment. And that's the allure ultimately of buying into Newcastle United. It's a sleeping giant at the moment. And I think that tells you through the combination of the two 10 percenters that PIF's main intent is not to interfere in day by day other than to inject financially into the club. So they'll have some ideas for activations, for marketing, for selling tickets, for sponsors, Mm. for the odd big name signing. Maybe they want a big name manager and so on. But I think once that initial Hollywood start dissipates and six months to a year passes, I don't think they'll have too much day-to-day behind running the football club if the takeover is successful. Um, one of the questions which came in, and I want you to basically put this in a nutshell and, and try and put this in a layman's terms as 
as much as possible from, from your side. Um, it, it comes in from Derek Rivers, and he says, um, the Man City owner's human rights record was not questioned by the Premier League. Um, I think you've said, obviously, if, if um, the Crown Prince had have been mentioned on the likes of, of the, the board for the club and things like that, things might have, have taken another turn because we all know that he, he is alleged to, to kill him. The, the journalist and the murder of the journalist. Um, do you think that this wasn't the main concern, like, like you've just alluded to there, that the human rights issue, of course, it, it would have been a concern, but it wouldn't have been a stumbling block because like like what I've seen from previous takeovers, of course, everybody's got a, a dark past, especially with these, these mega millions which has been pumped into the, the Premier League clubs. Do you think... That there has been something looked at Newcastle United from a different term in regards to, to the Premier League? There's a couple of things on this. So, first of all, human rights should, in a perfect world, be factored in. And Jamal Khashoggi's murder was horrific. Yasser Al Rumian spoke at a golf event two years about it. And although he said that Saudi Arabia's government were not culpable, he called it a mistake. And Mohammed bin Salman's on record as saying that he is ultimately accountable, not for the murder, but dealing with the consequences of the murder and how it happens beneath him. So that naturally comes to the fore. And Khashoggi's widow wrote to the Premier League. But Richard Master's response was very much, I can't involve you in the process. I've got every sympathy with you, but this is a confidential process. So I don't think human rights will at large shape either the Newcastle takeover or was that much of a factor in the Manchester City takeover either. And you can debate ethically whether it should. I tend to side morally with those that believe things like this should be factored in. Mm -hmm. But again, sometimes it's very difficult to prove because even when human rights groups all around the world are alleging it, it has to hold up in a UK court. So when there are allegations and they're denied or if they're tried in a Saudi Arabian court, and then ultimately somebody is acquitted, judgment calls need to be made. And the Premier League, I think, would be worried if they rejected a takeover solely on human rights for either Newcastle or Manchester City, that they would be leaving themselves open to a number of very costly and time-consuming legal challenges. The other thing with Manchester City to bear in mind in layman's terms is that it happened at a different time. And even though every season owners and directors continue to have scrutiny, it's clearly a lot easier when things are going well to stay within the Premier League once you've got your foot in the door. That first test is probably, unless something happens, the hardest one to pass simply because it's the most expansive. And at the time that Manchester City took the test, the owners and directors test was a little bit different. It was arguably a little bit weaker. And I think if Newcastle entered then, this particular takeover might well have passed as well, even if piracy was still on the horizon at the same time. And the second thing is, without going into too much heavy detail, because it's not about Newcastle, it's about Manchester City, the legal classifications were a little bit different, and Manchester City's ownership consortium and prospective owners were just pitched in a more clear-cut way. They weren't entering as a sovereign wealth fund with a range of people relevant to ongoing issues directly line managing the suggested chairman. And that's the big problem. And ultimately, for want of a better phrase, the red flag here that Yasser Al-Rumian comes from directly advising Mohammed bin Salman during a time when, for example, Jamal Khashoggi was murdered and piracy was absolutely rampant. 
Then at the same time, sitting above him on the board is the finance minister of Saudi Arabia, who reaches into government funds to fund PIF that then goes on to buy Newcastle United. And on top of that, Majid Al-Kasabi, who we've already touched upon, the media minister. So mm. it's a very direct and obvious government structure in practical terms, even if legally speaking, they are separate. But the Premier League aren't buying that. So this, unfortunately, is one, having given both sides as a journalist, that you just have to wait and see. And the club case will inevitably touch upon it. And if PIF's we're legally separate argument stands up, they'll be in a much stronger position to return to the table. This is one of the reasons why I did want to get you on, Ben, because like like was said at the very start of this, um, social media, especially Twitter, um, people can misinterpret certain things. And for, for the lack of characters you get on the likes of Twitter to, to put your point across, coming on something like this to, to try and explain it in a little bit more detail. And, and like I said, put it in layman's terms for especially someone like myself I'm, I'm not going to pretend that i know the ins and outs of this and to get someone like you on a show like this to, to try and go into to that little bit more detail next bit playing the people the difference between obviously the newcastle takeover the man city takeover there's been a few mentions there in regards to the recent takeover of uh, burnley and it's it's a financial problem that there was never a problem as far as we are led to believe with the Premier League and, and the financial issues with um, the public investment fund because we we know for fine well without even looking at the accounts that they've got money it, that that's not a problem. I think the whole Bernie thing is something of a whole different show. Um, but one of the things, once again, as best as you can in layman's terms, what basis do the Premier League not see any separation? between like like we said the government pif saudi arabia is it so can you can you try and, and put this into a similar situation as if it was like say the uk government or something like that can you try and describe it that way to the differences between yeah i mean obviously in the united kingdom we don't have a sovereign wealth fund investing on behalf of the british government so making an analogy with the uk government and PIF and the Saudi Arabian government isn't particularly apt. And in addition, it's just a very different structure of government because Mohammed bin Salman, both within the Saudi Arabian government and within PIF, is seen to have autonomy. So I mentioned Uber earlier. He decided he wanted to invest 5%. He brokered and negotiated the deal. It was all done personally. And PIF's structure as outlined in its documentation, which is available for anybody to read, is relatively fluid. And he can at any point have final say. He could ultimately shut down the Sovereign Wealth Fund. And let's not forget, mm. he founded it specifically to benefit Saudi Arabia, to create more jobs and to stop Saudi Arabia being over-reliant on oil. So I'm not sure that the best comparison is to try and put it in layman's terms in the context of the British government. But what I can say is this, PIF's argument the consortium and the club backing this up is that it has a separate legal classification. And what that means is that as it invests, each investment, even if it benefits Saudi Arabia, is essentially protected within the PIF infrastructure. So therefore, if something changes in Saudi Arabia, like the recession, for example, that absolutely desecrated the UAE and even parts of Saudi Arabia in 2008 when the Lehman brothers collapsed, at that point, they, the government, legally can't tell PIF, we need more money, you've got to sell this. We ultimately can't afford Newcastle anymore. You've got to try and flip it to somebody. None of that can happen in a practical, legal sense. 
And at the same time, once the strategy is in place, government members that are not on the PIF board can't lean upon PIF to make more money in one area or to play into a different government vision outside of Vision 2030. But then, and this would be the Premier League's perspective, you have the practical reality. And the practical reality is still this. Mohammed bin Salman runs PIF and founded PIF. He sits on the board, he has final say, and even the listed director, Yasser al-Rumian, is a close aide. So mm. the Premier League, in their due diligence, would be entitled to at least ask, what is your relationship, Yasser al-Rumian, with Mohammed bin Salman? Could he tell you to buy a certain player to sell the club, to change the kit sponsor, to break away and join a European Super League? or anything else that he pleases. Can he try and get a competitive game to Saudi Arabia? Does it have an ulterior motive? Is it politicized? These might all be things that Mohammed bin Salman wants to do. And at what point does Yasser al-Rumian, after he and PIF have taken charge, stick to the legal separation? And at what point is he exposed to practical influence by the Saudi Arabian state? And of course, it's unfair just to say, oh, yeah, Al-Rumian, he's a close aide of Mohammed bin Salman. He'll definitely be swayed. So it mm. needs due diligence. So then what is the due diligence? Well, it's things like PIF live on a .gov website. They were given a COVID bailout by the Saudi Central Bank that controls government funds. They have the finance minister, the media minister and the crown prince all on their board. The specific subcommittees that would ultimately be involved in Newcastle United from PIF's perspective, in other words, those pulling the budgetary strings, those transferring the funds to Newcastle, those buying players, those auditing the books, even if those staff members ultimately migrate across to Newcastle United, have Newcastle United emails, the PIF representatives that are pulling the money into Newcastle United will all come from subcommittees that are ultimately controlled by the finance minister again. So the Premier League will be looking at this paper trail and saying, as we follow the money, we realise that everything you sign off or don't sign off is actually, in terms of the most senior person in control, even if it's not Mohammed bin Salman, that senior person is usually, if not always, a government minister. And that's why the Premier League don't see any separation. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I did want to mention as well, you mentioned this at the very start, is obviously... Um, being sports were in contact with the, the Premier League. They, they did um, request the Premier League to have a look at this, obviously, with the whole piracy claims and things like that. One of the questions uh, by one of our members, Steve Howlett, has came in. Basically, it, it's rolling the questions, more of a statement saying, I wonder if we'd have this hassle if the big six didn't vote against it. What, what's your thoughts on that? Are, are you aware of other teams getting involved in, in regards to, to trying to, to derail this takeover or, or it, did it just not happen? No, there's no big six official votes or anti-Newcastle agenda whatsoever. Of course, there's clubs out there that have their own protected vested interests and therefore have on occasion received external correspondence outside of the confidential process, such as a letter from BN Sports to 19 other clubs, all clubs except Newcastle United, and they agree with the piracy concerns. But providing that we take them at their word, if they see the piracy situation resolved, there's no reason beyond that why they would be against the takeover. So why are they so pro-BN 
and so anti-piracy? And the answer, of course, is because of the huge injection of cash that comes to all 20 Premier League clubs, including Newcastle United, from the Middle East and North Africa television deal. So it's smart and sensible that clubs would be protecting their own interests, but their interests, mm. and specifically talking about the big six, as I understand it, are not about stopping Newcastle breaking into the top six. Nobody objected to Leicester City. No one has a problem with West Ham United. And I don't even see how we're defining the big six because when it was a big two during COVID, trying to ultimately leverage money in return from more control, and that was Liverpool and Manchester United, Manchester City were not a part of that. So suddenly there was a breakaway of two within the so-called six. And then if you're talking about six in terms of longevity within the Premier League, you have to start factoring in Everton or maybe Aston Villa and even Newcastle have been there for a fair few seasons themselves. There'll always be new players in the Premier League. And I think the more competitive and commercially viable it is, and thus the club's gain benefit, the happier every individual club will be. And I do think it's a bit of a conspiracy theory, if I'm perfectly honest with you, that six clubs are anti-Newcastle because they're terrified that Newcastle are going to come in there and win the league. Leicester came in and won the league in 2015, 2016. They're up there again. They were in the Champions League last season. Everybody applauded it. They loved the style of football. They liked the ownership group. There's been absolutely no objections. Now, I grant you that when Leicester's owners came in, Leicester were a championship club and the investment was a lot smaller. And when Kung Vishai said Leicester would be in the Champions League within three years and Leicester City was still a championship club, those words were met with derision. Even when Ranieri arrived, that appointment was laughed at, including from our very own people like Gary Lineker. So there are some differences, but I don't believe that the big six are against Newcastle. I think they are pro their own interests, specifically money they're getting from the Middle East and North Africa. And that is why they're naturally anti-piracy. And I think that in terms of Bean's interaction with the Premier League and the other clubs, if they genuinely had the ear of the process, they would have lobbied very privately. The fact that they shared their letters, the fact that they were so vocal tells you, in my opinion, that they were lobbyists from the outside. And then as regards the Premier League, it's really, really important to make a distinction between what is Premier League piracy and what is being piracy? Because this is not being coming up with piracy, lobbying to the Premier League, as some Newcastle fans would say, influencing the process in an unfair way. This is the Premier League also with their own opinion on piracy, with their own separate legal cases on piracy that being are not involved of, including several of them in Saudi Arabia. This is being sports that have taken a case to the WTO, but it's the Premier League that have submitted their own independent evidence with absolutely no engagement with BN in doing so. It's the Premier League that took their own actions to try and shut B out Q down. It's the Premier League that co-commissioned a so-called Mark Monitor report that looked at frequency analysis around piracy and concluded that the Saudi Arabian government would have, in all likelihood, have facilitated BLQ and thus directly supported piracy in some capacity. So when we use the word piracy, it isn't being are against Newcastle and are lobbying the Premier League. This is being have their opinion and their own legal cases. And some of that is politicised. But it's also the Premier League 
in a apoliticized way who have taken their own independent action on the piracy front because ultimately it's their rights. And people, I think, sometimes forget that. So when the Premier League say piracy is a problem, that's not just because they've been swayed by being. It's because they're sticking to their own independent position of being anti-piracy and feeling like the Saudi Arabian government had an involvement in that piracy. And they've been consistent in that position long before the takeover came to the table and long before be in sports started any kind of public lobbying. Like you said, um, I think we have to remember uh, as Newcastle United fans that Saudi Arabia before any any in any interest from being sports at Saudi Arabia were on, on the watch list for piracy from the from the Premier League. Um the next question we, we spoke about this before we we'll press record uh, tonight there, Ben. Um what's your views on Saudi and Qatar Football Association's meeting in Doha today? Um so that is from Martin Nesbitt. What's your thoughts on that one? Yeah, it's a good question, Martin. Thank you. And it's, again, very positive because what we're seeing is political meetings to begin with and the signing of the GCC Summit Peace Accord, which is secret in terms of its specific terms. And we're waiting for the tangible and peaceful effects that show the Gulf countries and Saudi Arabia and Qatar specifically are starting to engage. So step one was politics, negotiations, and then open borders. But now it's filtering down to sport and the meeting, along with the respective embassies reopening in Doha and Riyadh, show that this new accord and unity is not just words, it's actions. And the fact that the two heads of the federations have met means that we're starting to see sporting consequences. And this is really a follow on from talks around about a month ago when Qatar and Saudi Arabia were both awarded an Asian Cup. So they were head to head in a vote. Qatar won the 2030 edition, which was disappointing, obviously, for Saudi Arabia because they wanted to try and coincide that tournament on Saudi soil with Vision 2030. But these Vision 2030s are widespread in a number of countries and Qatar has its own Vision 2030, which is reasonably similar. So then Qatar mm. hosts in 2030, Saudi Arabia will host in 2034. And when that vote happened, the party started talking and an invite was made. And it's good to see that that invite has been accepted and facilitated. And now we'll see some kind of cross promotion and cross promotion will be around the Asian Cup. But of course, more pertinently around the Qatar 2022 World Cup, which is going to be really important because what Qatar wants now is to paint this World Cup back again as being a Gulf-wide or Middle East-wide World Cup, not just something taking place in Qatar and Doha specifically. And the Saudi Arabian Football Federation can help that. And in addition to that, we've also seen in the last 24 hours, Saudi Arabia's football captain go to the Aspatar Academy to get treatment on an injury. And the Aspatar Academy, which is the medical arm of a slightly broader organization called Aspire, is one of the most high tech and astonishing complexes in the world. It's got all the fancy medical equipment, special oxygen chambers, best doctors from all around the world. It's leading the way in terms of sports science. So when the Saudi Arabian captain needs an operation and some rehabilitation, he could go to any hospital. There's loads of great hospitals in Saudi Arabia, but he goes over there. Aspire, incidentally, uh, also a sponsor of Leeds United and do a lot with them. So there's a Qatari connection with Leeds United, too. But that's a significant sign, too, 
because it's showing you again that the borders are open, but so are the facilities. So sports moving in the right direction. These are all really positive signs. It's more evidence that eventually being sports will be back up and running in Saudi Arabia. And as importantly, it's more proof that the two parties are actually talking head to head. What can we do next? How can we show solidarity? How can we improve things? And all of this will definitely help alleviate the politics, which in turn, indirectly, is going to benefit a prospective Newcastle United takeover. So I want to end on two questions tonight, Ben, and obviously these will be your personal opinion on these ones. So first of all, this question comes from myself. I I haven't looked at the comments on this one, but are PIF still interested in buying Newcastle United? They absolutely are. I mean, I can categorically tell you that from talking to people within PAF. We said right at the beginning that I'm sort of painted as a Qatari stooge, but the context of my career in the Middle East over seven years was working in the UAE and flying over to Saudi Arabia on a number of occasions, specifically for PIF ventures. So I know a number of their people working in sport and entertainment, and it's absolutely clear that if there is a clear pathway to completing the Newcastle United takeover, PIF are still interested. They're not stringing anybody along, but they're not going to make a public statement to that effect because they don't want mass media hysteria akin to something like when BZG said that a deal was essentially done with Newcastle United. They don't want to announce anything either because they're aware that there's ongoing arbitration. And Mm. the key and sensible thing to do is not to litigate through the media you litigate through the law courts, you let the process run its course. And in addition to that, they're in a slightly difficult position because Mike Ashley wants to sell either way. So he can be as bullish as he likes. He can be as vocal as he likes. He can talk in the media. He can release statements. He can take the Premier League to court. He can be the one club that votes against being sports' deal across the MENA region. And why? Because he's showing he's fighting. He's reiterating he wants to sell the club. He's winning a few fans back, despite the fact that most people are unhappy with his tenure at Newcastle United Football Club. But then PIF have to walk through the door if it's all successful. And the last thing they want to do is get too close to a legal case against the league that they might be about to have to work with because it just doesn't start on the right terms. So they will want Mike Ashley and Newcastle United to fight to the tooth to try and get this takeover over the line, but they won't want to stay so close to it that they're affiliated to it. So there's bad blood, because if there's bad blood and Newcastle United win, or even if the case is settled and the Premier League are not particularly happy with how things have played out over the last few months. And it's hard to believe that they can be because Newcastle United have basically said, hey, you're leaking things and we think you're corrupt and are dragging your feet. And Amanda Staveley has also said that even though the consortium withdrew, it was all down to the Premier League dragging their feet. So there is some bad blood between the two parties. It might be resolved, but PIF sensibly just wants to take a step back. So when they come in, they have a professional working relationship with the Premier League, but make absolutely no mistake. I've heard it from a number of different sources, both within PIF, within Newcastle United Football Club, and from other consortium members as well, that PIF are still firmly interested in Newcastle United Football Club, providing, as I say, there's a clear path and a non-acrimonious path to allow them to complete this takeover. And they're prepared to wait for as long as it takes within reason, obviously. And that's why you've not seen them at the moment anyway, try and buy another football club, even though they were briefly and incorrectly linked with Marseille in Ligue 1. Finally, 
Final question of the evening, Ben. Um, what's your gut feeling? Will this happen? Look, I get asked this question a lot. And first of all, my opinion doesn't really mean anything. As a journalist, you would expect me to have balance. And in trying to answer this question and in striving for balance, it's again really important just to stress one thing, that anyone reporting things as a journalist that only speaks to one party might get an exclusive and something very useful. And that has a value. But by the same token, another party will give another narrative. So until you try and talk to everybody, and by everyone, I mean the direct parties, but I also mean those on the outside in. So it's still useful to get a government perspective. It's still useful to get a BN perspective and so on, simply because you can piece it together. And occasionally you get one story, someone gives you the opposite, and you scratch your head and think, yikes, what is actually accurate? And until you have that full picture and all sides saying it's either on or off, for me to get Newcastle fans falsely excited and say it's definitely going to happen, that's simply a way of trying to get extra clicks and it's unfair on the passionate Newcastle United fan base. Similarly, if people just say it's off, they've probably got an agenda because it can't be off until PIF and the consortium decide that they're definitely going to walk away. My own personal opinion is that the club case will end up being settled rather than seen out in full. And if it's not settled, and despite the fact that Newcastle United fans are very confident in the legal team representing the club, I think the Premier League have a stronger chance of winning that club case, which is why I think it will be settled. But if the piracy situation resolves itself and the club case is settled amicably between the two parties, I think there might be a pathway for PIF to return. So everything hinges upon the club case. My own belief, like I say, is the club case will eventually be either settled or resolved relatively amicably. But if Newcastle continue this bullish anti-Premier League stance, if they continue these little statements of animosity, if they continue to challenge the Premier League, it's only going to make the Premier League want to fight back harder and stronger, in my personal opinion, not something I've been told by anyone within the Premier League, only my personal opinion. And then we're going to get acrimony, and acrimony will lead to both sides taking a polar opposite opinion, at which point I genuinely think the Premier League are in a stronger position. Like I say, if the club case is settled or resolved more amicably, there will be a pathway for PIF. Bean, I think, will eventually return as well and piracy will be resolved. At that point, I do genuinely think there's a very good chance of this takeover happening. But I wouldn't Shopping these days can be underwhelming, but at QVC, we believe those who love to shop deserve a living, breathing way to shop, where product descriptions are alive with demos by creators, chats with inventors, and hosts who know the most. From self-care and kitchenware to fashion trends and forever faves, at QVC, we bring life to products and products to life. Shop qvc.com podcast and use code QVC15podcast for $15 off $30 for new customers. This is shopping brought to life sit here and I know that sounds a bit like I'm on the fence but I wouldn't sit here and give anyone false hope and I wouldn't sit here with a load of passionate Newcastle fans and just go sorry it's off that's it get over it we're not there patience is required we're sadly somewhere in the middle so all I can sort of say definitively from people I've spoken to is there may well be if the club case heads in the right direction a clear pathway to this takeover still happening those that tell you it's definitely happening or it's definitely not happening aren't giving you the full picture or 
are spreading a message that's coming from one side and obviously haven't spoken to all parties. So Newcastle fans can certainly have hope. And I'd add to that as well, that my understanding, as I said very openly on Twitter, is that there will be significant movement in the club case in February. And there might be final movement in the club case by the middle of March at the latest, if not sooner. So patience is required, but hopefully that patience will only last another month or two before we get a clear picture. But look, I'm a journalist. My opinion doesn't really matter. My job is to try and speak to as many parties as possible to give you my honest opinion, but around fact not speculation. They don't have an agenda, pro or anti-Newcastle. I'd like Newcastle to do well. I've always had a soft spot for Newcastle United. So unfortunately, I can't come on this podcast and just say yes or no to that question, even though it's a question that I get asked more than any other question. But what I can tell you is that things are moving in the right direction and there's a willingness and a cautious optimism on the consortium's part. What I want to clear up just before we sign off tonight is, like we said at the very, very beginning of this one, that you you do get a, a lot of Newcastle fans who seem to to obviously um, fight back with, with some of the things and, and to take things out of context with some of the things which you see. But personally, I don't want to speak on your behalf, mate. But like you've said, that you are a journalist, a football journalist, and for a takeover to come along and Newcastle United to be the likes of a powerhouse for the better words, that makes your job a lot more interesting. So, like I said, I don't want to speak for you, but you did say this on on the, the previous podcast, which we did ten months ago, that you would love a Newcastle United takeover. Of course, you would. Yeah, I mean, look, I would love more specifically, Newcastle United to be successful and fans to be there passionate and smiling. So I've always had a soft spot for Newcastle United. And I think when I post a photo of seven-year-old me wearing the Newcastle brown ale shirt, people think, oh, he was just wearing it once and he's pulled it out there. It's all part of the Qatari propaganda. Say something negative and then post a picture of you as a scrawny seven-year-old and it sort of offsets it. But the reality is actually this that I first started attending Leicester games at the old Filbert Street and Newcastle United visited Filbert Street and they were the first club, certainly in living memory for me, that were given the entire shed stand opposite the main stand. And they came to Filbert Street under Kevin Keegan, who was recently in charge, and they needed a result to ultimately stay up. And they took the lead and Steve Walsh equalised for Leicester. And then really late in the game, Walsh puts through his own net Newcastle win 2-1, they stay up and there's a mass pitch invasion and seven-year-old me or however old I was at the time obviously thought a pitch invasion was the coolest thing in the world at that time and I just loved the passion, I loved the volume of fans that had come down to Leicester. It was just brilliant to see. And I had a soft spot for Newcastle and I followed them ever since. And of course, the next season, they won 10 straight games in the old Division One, now the mm. championship. And that gave them the foundation to get promoted to the Premier League. And then on the last game of that season, they absolutely hammered Leicester by seven goals to one. And up you went into the Premier League. And then Leicester had a load of playoff heartache. And when we got into the Premier League, I remember playing Newcastle United in our first home game of the season. And I believe Newcastle won by three goals to one at Leicester. And I was just so excited because this again was a Newcastle side with flair players and foreigners. And 
you know, obviously this was the influx within the Premier League when big teams like Newcastle were able to sign the best of the best. But Leicester still had players like Walsh and Pryor and Lee Philpott and Steve Guppy. And before all of that, we'd had like Mike Newell and David Speedy. So it was absolutely incredible to see these players that I'd only really known as stickers in my Panini album. So Newcastle is a club that I followed very closely from a distance. I've always had a, a warm spot for because you have a passionate and intelligent fan base. So what I would like to see is a successful Newcastle United. But for the protection of Newcastle United, I don't want any old takeover just because it's going to be rich or just because it looks good on paper. So if everything was open and transparent in hypothetical number one and the Premier League didn't do the job properly, and PIF and the consortium were a perfect ownership group, then let them in and let's have Newcastle United competing for second place behind my team, Leicester City, and being in the Champions League and let them both play in the Champions League final. And again, we can beat you in that final as well. But if on the other hypothetical, it's all open and actually the consortium haven't answered the right questions and there are huge red flags and warning signs and piracy is a problem and maybe human rights is even a problem, then don't let this ownership group in because it's not right for Newcastle United. And surely some Newcastle United fans can see all of that from BZG who have gone to Derby and it's still not fully acquired and it's an absolute mess and that mm. is a bullet dodged. So if everything was transparent and this was right for Newcastle, I'd love to see them succeed. If everything is open and it's wrong for Newcastle, then it is going to be a case of a bullet dodge. So I'm not really talking that specifically to this ownership group. I'm talking more broadly when I make that point that I would love Newcastle United under the right circumstances to be incredibly successful, to play like they did under Keegan with a smile on the face. You know, Kevin Keegan, who I've interviewed many times and used to come out to be in sports, used to say one of the most important things when you're the manager of Newcastle United, regardless of the score, is to win the fans over in the first 10 or 15 minutes of each half. He wants players to go out there with purpose and intent. And it doesn't matter whether you're 5-0 up or 5-0 down, you have to win the fans over. And a Newcastle United football club with fans on side, regardless of who's in charge, will be in a stronger position. And with the right investment, it's going to be one heck of a football club. And I would personally love to see that. But what I wouldn't love to see is a load of excitement, the wrong ownership group, a load of money coming in, and then suddenly a year down the line, everybody regretting it and realising that the correct checks weren't done, that there were warning signs ignored, because that might make the club weaker in the long term. So again, everybody wants this takeover because they're looking at the money and the power and the potential. But hopefully any new owner will give you that. But I don't look at it like that because I'm not a Newcastle United fan. I look at it like the right process needs to have been carried out. If the right process leads to this takeover, good luck to Newcastle United. If the right process shows that this is not the right ownership group for Newcastle United, go and find another owner and let's get smiles back on faces in Newcastle United back where they belong as soon as possible. Well then, Ben, I think you, you've edited that perfectly. Um, I just want to say thanks very much for joining us and thank you for your balanced view. I think it is something which Newcastle United fans um, have needed here for, for a long time in, in regards to not necessarily um, take on one side or the other, but like I said, a, a balanced view. Um, everybody who is watching, thank you for joining us tonight. There has been hundreds of comments and questions. I, I do apologise if I didn't get around to your question. Hopefully we've covered enough there tonight uh, to, to entertain you and give you a little bit more information on that. 
don't forget to, to like the video too uh, and subscribe to the Gallagher Shots YouTube channel. We do have a couple of more podcasts coming this week. I uh, will be joined by Ryan Taylor tomorrow night, so he will be coming on to have a question, a question and answer about his playing career at Newcastle United. And the Always Smiling Faces podcast lads are back on Wednesday night with another very special guest. So we'll see you then. Thank you very much, Ben. And take care of yourself. Cheers, Chris. Stay safe. Keep up the good work as well. And thanks to everyone for listening and also not calling me Stephen Merchant. I just have to clarify, he's a lot taller and more handsome. So good to engage with everybody. Good luck to all of the Newcastle fans. Stay happy and stay healthy. And hopefully we'll bring you a bit more definitive news on the takeover very soon. Perfect. Thank you very much, Stephen. Bye. (laughs) (laughs) Sports Social Podcast Network.